From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When he found out that almost every home on his block in Louisville had burned, including his, Larry Bovin tried to make sense of something that still boggles the mind. To think that one house was spared and all the rest were leveled to the ground. The only things, in some cases, was maybe an arch. But this isn't just a story of loss. We met Bovin this weekend, just as he and his wife were getting the keys to a temporary apartment inside a church. How they've weathered the past few days and what the future might hold. Then, with Omicron raging, and after a slew of holiday gatherings, what you need to know about COVID in Colorado right now. Plus, a psychologist helps us step into the new year after a challenging 2021. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Nearly a thousand homes were wiped out in the Marshall Fire in Boulder County last week. One of those houses belonged to Larry and Mary Boven. Last Thursday, the couple evacuated from Louisville and in short order learned their home was a total loss. On Sunday afternoon, I met them at a church right outside Denver in Edgewater. You were just handed keys to where? Well, to our apartment here at uh, Edgewater United Methodist Church so that we'd have a temporary place to live. So this is an apartment that you can have for how long, do you know? Uh, For as long as we want. It, it, It was overwhelming to me when I got a call from our pastor uh, Reverend Clare at our Louisville United Methodist Church that they were offering these apartments because of Mary. I mean, Mary's kind of, you know, she has some special needs. This is and your wife, Mary. My, my wife, Mary, she has a need for a handicap uh, access and, and that sort of thing. So your own apartment with a bathroom and a shower and uh, a living space and bedroom and, and all of that and a kitchenette, all of the kitchen utensils are there, brand new, just bought. They're bringing in a complete bed this afternoon. I mean, it's just amazing the outpouring of generosity from this community who don't even know us from anyone except just that we've had a a, a tremendous loss. So your son set up a GoFundMe for you and your wife, Mary, and in the description... Uh, It says that you and Mary built your forever home in Louisville in 1993. Tell me more about how you envisioned your future in this home. I, um, to be very frank, we felt like we were were going to live there for the rest of our lives. Um, I felt very, very safe, very secure in Louisville. Um, It reaches out to those that need help. Because when I moved in there, I had no idea how my wife, the condition that my wife had, 
would get more and more serious as time went along. And do you want to name that condition, Larry, just so uh, we understand? Well, it, it's, it's basically MS, uh, like the police department, for example, or, and the fire department, and even local businesses took Mary kind of in under their wing and were concerned about her whenever she might lose her car, you know, she couldn't find her car, so the police department would, you know, help her find her car downtown. Uh, take us to the day of the fire, Larry. We know the winds began to howl in excess of 100 miles an hour. What what stands out? What do you remember? Oh, just just how how helpless. I guess I just had was holding out hope against hope that maybe somehow my house would be saved, and yet at the same time, I almost I, I felt that sense of this is it. And you and live in Centennial Heights West. Centennial Heights West. So our fire department, uh, Station 2, is just a block and a half or so away. And I was just thought, well, you know, I'll just go over there and see if, <laughs> for some reason I didn't think they knew, but, you know, I knew, I knew they knew. When you were at the fire department, did they tell you to evacuate? Yes, yeah, they, they had actually thought I had gotten the reverse 911 call, but I had not. So I immediately went back home. At that point, the smoke and the fire was very, very intense. And so it, it made it almost nearly impossible to see anything. I pulled into, the, into my driveway uh, to get my wife out and dogs and the neighbor's dog as well with us, so we left. How did you know to take your neighbor's dog, Larry? Well, my, they weren't home, but the dog, <laughs> we've cut a hole in the fence for our dogs to kind of go back and forth between the two homes. Oh, my. The, and then the door was happened to be open, and so both of them were there. We just got into the car, and we pulled out of the driveway, and the smoke was so intense at that point that I could not even see anything. I was worried I was gonna run into somebody, mm. you know, maybe a, a responding vehicle or something or somebody else's car driving up the street. But it, we pulled out, went through the smoke and the ash. Did you that, use your windshield wipers yeah, for that? It was, it was basically, there was just nothing else we could do. And then we made the turn on Centennial Parkway and ended up moving on toward my daughter's home in Longmont, and that's where we eventually ended up many hours later, I might add, because of just the, the long line of cars headed that way to wherever. Were you able to take any physical objects? We weren't really able to grab anything physical. Uh, after the fact, I, I wish I had picked up something. I, I just was more concerned about lives than I was about property. And I know that it would have been nice to have maybe picked up some of our pictures or some personal items that we can't ever replace. But for whatever reason, I just decided that wasn't important. Mm. What was important was life. You're wearing a very Western, almost Pendleton-like fleece. I understand your son bought this for you since you evacuated. Larry, what do you need right now? You talked about this, this temporary apartment having kitchen utensils. What are the sorts of things you're finding yourself 
now out of? Out of? Well, you know, it's the, I guess it's just a, a common daily food items, things like that, that, you know, you, you go to the refrigerator and, you know, you go grab something and... There's always not, a little extra butter, maybe. Yeah, it's not there. Or it's tools in the garage. All this stuff that you took for granted is now gone. Oh, well, I'm going to go, like, I'm a big runner, okay, so I, 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 I like to go running all the time, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll just go get my headlamp. Well, I don't have it anymore. It's gone. <laughs> or my, my pack. E- even though I miss all that stuff that I used to put so much value in, it's just, I hate to seem so trivial about it, but it was just sitting there taking up space. Hmm. So it's almost like I really don't need that stuff. I really just need the people in my life that have made it special. Are you insured? Are you well insured? Has that process even begun? Is that some comfort? It is a comfort. It is nice to know that we are well insured. Um, we, we that made, call has been made. That call was, I made that call on that very day. Which means you knew in fairly quick order that your home had been destroyed. Yes, because we have, once again, the network in Louisville is very, very good. And people calling people, texting people constantly in contact. And, and I, of course, being on the, on the fire board. That's right, because you were a longtime former volunteer firefighter, and you are a board member of the Louisville Fire Department. Right, right. And John said, well, I'm just driving up your road right now. The chief. The chief. The chief driving up the road right now, and he says to me, it's gone. That's all he said. This was over the phone. Over the phone. He just said, it. it's gone, Larry. And every other house on your block, except for that one, is gone. Except for that one. Yeah, one house on the right, just as you're coming up the street, and I think I'll remember that too, you know, forever, is that to think that one house was spared and all the rest were leveled literally to the ground. The only things in some cases was maybe an arch. The single home spared speaks to the mosaic pattern we hear about when fires burn. And uh, Larry, please tell me if this question is premature, uh, but have you thought about whether you'll rebuild where you were? I'm here again. This is... It's uh, so early. It's so early on, but yet I've felt... Just within the last day or so, I felt like, yeah, I want to rebuild. I want to stay in Louisville. I I feel so strong about the supportive nature, supportiveness. I think I've already spoken about that. Do you think that you are a victim of climate change? I'm wanting to say yes. I think this was one of those where you have the combination, obviously, of a ignition source. To be determined. To be determined. Uh, to see that wind in combination with fire, it, it's almost, um, it was to be expected. It's a perfect storm. 
I know to this end it's really important for you to talk about the need for volunteer firefighters. Yeah. You were one, as I said, for two decades. We need them more than anything. And I, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, well, just because we had a massive destructive fire that we suddenly, yeah, now we need them. No, we've need, we need them all the time. We need them in every way possible because it brings out the best in your community because they know that they're doing something for someone else other than just themselves. And in turn, it may end up being them that gets helped. What do your prayers sound like right now? Have you had a moment to pray? We've been thinking and praying, and and I'd say it's kind of more being concerned about those in our community that have been affected by this, Uh, sharing with others through text messaging and emails and telephone calls. I've called so many people that I know of in Louisville that their homes were affected, where they, um, they lost it all. Uh, so a lot of my prayers are around how can, even though I've lost everything, how can I reach out and help them? I just want to acknowledge how lovely and remarkable it is that in the face of enormous loss, you're finding a, a place for service yeah. to others. Larry, you've been so generous with your time. I'm grateful. And I wonder if it would be okay for us to check in w- with you once in a while. Oh, absolutely. I, I would love to have, have you um, contact me at any time. Sixty-nine-year-old Larry Bovin of Louisville, when we spoke Sunday, he and his wife had just gotten the key to an apartment inside Edgewater United Methodist Church. It's a story of coming together after the Marshall Fire in Boulder County destroyed their home, one of nearly a thousand. Okay, when we come back, understanding the weather and climate behind the devastation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mesa County's vast backcountry attracts a lot of people, and quite often they get lost or injured. That's when the search and rescue team swings into action. The volunteers pay for equipment out of their own pockets, driven by a sense of mission. Yeah, I believe it was my calling, helping your fellow man out in times of need. The volunteers of the Mesa County Search and Rescue Ground Team, their story and pictures are at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We don't know what sparked last week's deadly grass fires. An investigation is underway. The FBI is involved. Warrants have been served. We do know that relentless winds and bone-dry conditions had catastrophic results. Climate change is here. The weather is weird. And Becky Bollinger is back, assistant state climatologist. Becky, thanks for being with us once again. Thanks for having me, Ryan. We'll talk about all the snow as well. Three and a half inches in Grand Junction, 12 inches in Genesee, 87 inches in one of Colorado's snowiest places, Wolf Creek Pass. But let's start with those conditions 
Thursday in Boulder County. Uh, just remind us what is going on sort of meteorologically. So meteorologically, we were looking at a pattern where a front that was going to bring the snow was coming through. And it's really not surprising to have a day before that that is very dry and windy. You can get those strong downsloping winds off the east side of the Rockies. And as they move downhill, they pick up and they're very dry winds. So that is what we were experiencing before the arrival of the the cold that brought the snow was a very uh, dry and windy day. Um, That is typical for our front range communities, but this wind event was even more extreme and the winds were even higher than what is typical for our downslope wind days. Yeah, I was out in Golden that afternoon, absolutely stunned by the gusts, which topped 105 miles an hour. How out of the norm is 105 from what traditionally happens, that process you described? Yeah, I would say that it's not completely unprecedented, but those values don't happen every single year. I would say what is more common are gusts that are between uh, 60 to 80 miles per hour when you're in uh, the foothills areas of, you know, Boulder, Fort Collins, uh, and, and those areas. And once you exceed 100, that is getting a little bit more into an, an extreme event. Not record-breaking, but, but definitely uh, an outlier. You talked about this being a dry event before snow, that that's not uh, atypical. But of course, we have to think about the conditions that existed before these winds began. Just remind us of what those sort of piled on top of. I mean, a very dry winter uh, to that point. Yeah. So we know that December is, climatologically speaking, a, a dry time of year for our front range communities and out onto the eastern plains. But what is not normal is to have the level of dryness that we've seen pretty much since June all the way through to early December, mid December. Um, you know, we've had locations that have seen uh, their that driest part of the year in their entire records. Um, <clears throat> and for other areas, at, at least a top five uh, level of dryness. And then we've also had the extreme warmth. So for, for much of, of the areas along the Front Range and Eastern Plains, uh, we had a, a near record warm fall, which is the September, October, November time period. And that also followed a very warm uh, summer as well. And yet there was enough grass to burn for these two fires in Boulder County to be fueled. Can you can you explain that? Or is it just that it was like dead grass? What? Yeah, no, it was uh, really critical that we actually got such amazing moisture last spring. So that started with our really epic snowfall that happened in mid-March. And that continued where we had a lot of events uh, to bring in moisture throughout uh, the rest of the spring and through May. And it was uh, a very much wetter than average spring Mm. on top of that. That is normally our wettest time of year anyway. 
And so you had all this extra moisture, which really helped to grow this really lush vegetation. Things were were very green. And that's really important because we had all that moisture to grow those grasses. And then the dryness just proceeded to to dry all those grasses out and, and make for some excellent fuels for uh, for any fires to pop up. Larry Boven uh, mentioned this being a perfect storm. And the more you talk about the ingredients, that really seems to resonate. Uh, okay, so the recent snow, is it going to help with the extreme drought that uh, had been declared in a lot of the front range in the plains? I would say the recent snow is definitely helpful and it helps. We know for sure right now that it's going to help keep things from getting worse. What we don't know for sure is how much benefit there will be from the snow. That is going to take some time. So I know we've got another snow event coming up this week. And then after that, are we going to return to abnormally warm and dry conditions? If we do, then it's possible that the snow could quickly evaporate and the soils will quickly dry out again and we'll be in that dry situation. And so what we're looking at is how much benefit, how much memory will there be from from these snow events? And the longer the memory is, the more benefit we'll have from it. And, and the better off we'll be. But if it does quickly disappear, uh, we could be looking at going back into a situation where uh, risk of fires uh, getting out of control quickly would be higher. That is to say the conditions that led to the Boulder County fires, they, they could be recreated. Uh, that is a possibility. I don't want to catastrophize, uh, but that's the question it, on the horizon. It is. We do know that grass fires are common uh, east of the divide in our um, in our high plains areas, and uh, it's it's something that we we do tend to see in the winter with those uh, drier conditions and uh, lots of wind events. So um, it's something that is a risk every year, and I think it is a greater risk when you are experiencing a drought. Thank you so much for being with us. Becky Bollinger is the state's assistant climatologist. And we'll be back in just a bit with a little on-air therapy, given what Coloradans have been through even just in the last week. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's alpine tundra is most visible in Rocky Mountain National Park, above 11,400 feet. It's a spectacular environment, but cold and severe. Still, life persists. The firs and pines at the edge of the tundra look more like shrubs, stunted and gnarled from frequent exposure to icy hurricane-force winds. And they may take a hundred years to gain a mere inch in diameter. Above timberline, many flowering plants have dense hairs to protect against the cold. The largest of these is the alpine sunflower, also known as the old man of the mountain for the white hairs covering it. For 10 long years, it stores energy in its roots. And then it blooms, but only once. As the writer Ann Zwinger wrote, the Alpine tundra is a land of contrast and incredible intensity, where the sky is the size of forever and the flowers the size of a millisecond. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with the support of Coble & Company. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Before the ball dropped on New Year's Eve, I had myself a good cry, an ugly cry. Now, I have a lot to be grateful for. I'm housed and healthy and employed. But we've all watched as our fellow Coloradans fall prey to a virus. We saw people's homes engulfed in flames. And we've lost more lives to shootings. It seems like there's always more grief to process, which we're going to do now with clinical psychologist at UC Health, Dr. Justin Ross. Dr. Ross, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good morning. I can't tell you how cathartic that crying jag was. And I actually shared it on Twitter and quite a few people shared that they'd done the same. Is crying something you encourage? Well, th- there's certainly a lot to be sad about, um, and we've experienced just profound amounts of distress and disruption in our lives over the past 20 months. And, you know, we really closed out 2021 with a significant hardship and distress with this fire in, in our northern communities here. So I think crying is just a great opportunity to, to let an emotion be processed, right, to, to allow those experiences that you're feeling in mind and body and thought to to really work themselves through. So I think if you're recognizing the need to cry, it's really important to let that happen. Yeah. I, you know, in my case, I watched a sad movie which helped kind of knock it loose. It's also hard mm-hmm. to make yourself cry, even if you feel like you want to. Any thoughts on that? I think that's right. I mean, tapping into a, another experience to sort of get those juices flowing, so to speak, to uh, to tap into those emotions is a great way to start that process, especially if you can feel it uh, lying just underneath the surface. Hmm. Okay, to the Boulder Fire specifically, what would you want folks in Superior and Louisville to know about the long emotional road ahead of them? Well, first and foremost, just a, a a heartfelt uh, moment of, of empathy for what everybody's experiencing up there. Um, watching it happen from, you know, from my home in, in Denver was just remarkably distressing. And so to live through something like that, where um, your entire livelihood is threatened in, in a really quick time span, is going to have significant layers of distress. So I think the starting point is, is really to normalize and validate that whatever those experiences are that you're feeling are completely normal. Uh, this level of disruption and devastation is going to impact people differently. And that could range from uh, from anger and sadness to uh, to fear and anxiety to to frustration. And those emotional experiences are, again, they're completely normal. They're happening because you're a, a human being who's just experienced profound trauma and and loss. So giving time and permission for those experiences is the first step. And then recognizing that this, the emotional impact may come in waves, and this may be a long road, uh, that there may be lingering concerns with with anxiety, uh, with fear, with uh, processing through what's been lost. All of those experiences are going to be completely normal. So, so giving time and permission to work through that, through the rebuilding process is, is critical. Uh, for those affected by the fire, there are any number of mental health resources available, Colorado Crisis Services, which you can reach by texting TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. Jewish Family Service and Community Foundation Boulder County have partnered to offer counseling to residents of Boulder County. A state program called I Matter has sessions for young people. There's also the National Disaster Helpline. 
800-985-5990. That's 800-985-5990. It, it just seems like so many of us have been running on fumes in terms of resilience. You know, then comes a mass shooting after the pandemic. Then come the fires. Is there a way to rebuild, I don't know, like one's reservoir? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, and first and foremost, thanks for sharing those resources. I, I think it's really important that now more than ever, we encourage uh, and promote the resources that we have available in our community to, to help people with the emotional and psychological rebuilding that's going to coincide the physical rebuilding. And to your point, Ryan, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, the last 20 months have been uh, have been extremely disruptive and on so many levels. And um, we've already been, you know, been pretty low in our reservoir of, of resiliency. Um, I do think it's possible to rebuild, but but I don't think it's easy. I, I think it takes a tremendous amount of time and patience and sort of psychological skill to start that process. One of the hardships, the, the biggest hardship is that this prolonged exposure to burnout, which is coming from the pandemic, it's coming from um, this fire disruption um, it really depletes our resources. And so we need to make sure that we're taking the time and the necessary steps to rebuild slowly. What might that rebuilding look like? Um, and, and I imagine that differs yeah. from person to person, but is that a hobby? Is that meditation? Is that prayer? I mean, all those things? I think all, all of those things are great. I mean, we, we tend to use a framework that's called trauma-informed resiliency, which really comes from understanding the psychological impact that we experience through such hardship. And, and there are a few things to really think about in this process. And again, the first is we have to give ourselves permission to normalize and validate the experiences that we're having. It, we, we have to give them time and attention, whether that's anxiety, fear, stress, sadness, whatever it may be. We need to first normalize and validate that and recognize that those experiences are happening. The, the second is that we really need to then develop our own sense of safety in this moment. And one of the, the hardships about an experience like this through the fire is that our, our sense of psychological safety is taken away from us. Mm. Psychological safety re requires predictability and control. And when we can't predict, when we can't see with clarity, when we don't feel as though we have the ability to manage that in the moment, it's going to really wreak havoc on our sense of feeling safe. So we need to start with that framework in mind, um, whether that's uh, with, with our loved ones, with our community, with our connections, to feel as though we have not only a safe environment, a safe dwelling, but a safe place emotionally and mentally to start to process these experiences. Huh. Which makes me think of uh, Larry Boven, who we heard from at the top of the show, who lost his home in Louisville, uh, and who is very focused right now on his own community, how it has helped him, and how he might help it. And it occurs to me that he is, in a way, creating a sense of security and safety for himself and for others, uh, which is reflected in what you said there. Okay, I'm going to have you stick around, Dr. Ross. We're going to talk about Omicron next with a panel of medical experts, and I'd love your insights from a mental health point of view. So stay on the line. Dr. Justin Ross, clinical psychologist with UC Health. Indeed, we'll be right back to talk about COVID in Colorado, what you need to know after the holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is proud to sponsor Young Ameritown, an educational program for fourth through sixth grade students with immersive lessons in business, economics, and real world skills like money management and working at a radio station. Find out more about this program and others at yacenter.org. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado set a new record for positive COVID cases in a single day, more than 8,700 on December 29th, a record that's likely to be broken again soon. Hospitalizations have grown steadily but are nowhere near their peak. The Omicron variant is largely to blame. So what does that mean for daily life, for kids returning to school, and indeed for everyone's mental health two years into the pandemic? Dr. Michelle Barron is Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention at UC Health. Dr. Barron, welcome back. Thank you, Ryan. Dr. Sam Dominguez is a pediatric infectious disease physician at Children's Hospital Colorado. Hello, doctor. Hello, Ryan. Thanks for having us on. And once again, Dr. Justin Ross is with us, clinical psychologist also with UC Health. Dr. Barron, uh, the Delta variant dominated for a while. Now Omicron's taking over. But early data uh, from abroad and uh, some early data domestically suggest there might not be a spike in deaths. What does that say about Omicron? Um, I think it says that potentially this is a little bit milder form of the disease um, and that it is not causing um, a lot of the pneumonia and airway issues that some of the people experience with Delta. I want to make sure that people understand that that doesn't give you a free pass and that they still need to take it very seriously. So even though there may be less deaths, there's still probably going to be a high proportion of hospitalizations, especially in individuals that are unvaccinated or those with underlying medical issues that just make them higher risk. Well, I appreciate how you frame that, Dr. Barron. I find myself constantly vacillating between two states of mind. That is, it's just a matter of time before I get Omicron. Um, surrender that reality, Ryan. On the other hand, do everything you can reasonably do to avoid it. Which is correct, or are they both a little true? I guess you could say they're both a little true, although I think that taking the approach of, oh, I'm just going to get it is a little fatalistic. Hmm. And you could think about in so many ways in our lives that there's lots of things that could potentially happen to us and yet don't because we make good choices. Like getting in your car, you could have an accident every single day. But you generally don't because you follow the rules and make sure you're following all the safety measures. So I feel like people, some degree, have been throwing their hands up and saying, well, why do I bother now? I'm just going to get it. And I don't think we should go that route. I think we have so many things we can do to prevent this that I don't think it's an inevitability unless you sort of take that approach to say, yeah, I've given up. And then you probably will end up getting it. Okay, that, that's helpful. The point is I'm going to take as many precautions as I f feel comfortable with, as fit into my life, and go from there. All right, uh, Dr. Dominguez, we speak to you on a morning with news. The FDA announced that kids as young as 12 can get a Pfizer booster five months after their second shot. Uh, the two-shot series also available to 5- to 11-year-olds. I want to say that New York City saw an almost fourfold increase in hospitalizations of children for COVID-19 cases because of Omicron. Uh, does this mean Omicron affects children differently from other strains? 
Yeah, that's a great question, question, Ryan. We actually don't really know the answer to that question yet. What I would say, though, talking to my colleagues who are on the East Coast who are seeing this wave of Omicron already, and it's going to start here very shortly, as you just alluded to, uh, the cases that are mounting here, and, and our health department just released data that basically all the cases now here in our state are also Omicron is that really I think it's more of a numbers game than a severity game. So I think that what's happening in New York and other parts of New England is that so many kids are getting infected because this virus is so transmissible that that, that results in actually more kids getting hospitalized because just a percentage game. So mm. if you have um, more and more kids getting infected, even if it's not more severe, uh, that's still the same percentage are getting potentially hospitalized um, will that will just go up. Um, and what we do know that unfortunately, as you just mentioned, um, that kids are until recently weren't eligible for boosters except for those 16 older. And actually kids under the age of five are not eligible for any vaccines. And so they are a more vulnerable population in terms of getting infected uh, because they don't have um, as great access to vaccines as adults do. Was the Pfizer news for kiddos welcome news to you? Yes, it's fabulous news. Fabulous, fabulous news. Uh, Dr. Barron, in light of Omicron, Governor Polis thinks that we should stop talking about boosters and start calling it a third shot in the series. Is that how you see it? I guess. I think there's a lot of, you know, I don't know that in the end it matters what you call it. The end is that people get their shots. And I think that is something I want to make sure, again, everybody knows is that shots are available. It's worth getting them. And it's so important to prevent further spread of this particular virus, especially this particular variant. What is the guidance right now on receiving a booster shot if someone has contracted a breakthrough infection? I imagine that with the spreadability, that's not a word, of Omicron, that that is going to be a question a lot of people face. Yeah, no, and that's a great question. And so I think uh, the general guidance has been that you potentially have up to 90 days after infection to where you probably are still safe. But we have been generally recommending that once you're out of that isolation window where you've been told to stay home and you're feeling better, you're not having fevers, whatever symptoms you've had have either resolved or improved to get it as soon as you can after that, because unfortunately time flies and I think people forget. And then we don't know with each new variant whether having had it is going to actually have any level of protection. Certainly looking through all the variants we've seen, um, they don't seem to offer a high level protection against reinfection with the new strain. So getting a booster or getting vaccinated is still really important. But you say that that should happen shortly after quarantine. But quarantine was recently reduced, right, by the CDC, Dr. Barron? It was, but not for everybody. So I think with those guidelines, the key thing is that you'd had either mild or no symptoms and you were tested either because you were exposed or for other reasons. And so individuals that actually got more severe disease have to still follow or, or immunocompromised hosts actually still have to follow the previous rules. But that being said, whether it's five days, 10 days or 20 days, um, again, sort of the same thought process of once you're feeling better, um, your symptoms are improved and you're out of when you were told to basically stay home or to isolate, uh, we would recommend you getting it as soon as you can, just again, because things get sort of missed in the, oh, I'm good now, so I don't have to worry. And mm. we know this virus is unfortunately persisting and continuing to change. So I think we'll see new variants without a doubt. We will see new variants without a doubt. 
rosy news the third day into 2022. Uh, Dr. Dominguez, uh, do the new CDC quarantining guidelines apply to children, the, the shorter quarantine? Uh, yes, they apply to all to everyone. So uh, the same rules apply to kids as applies to adults uh, that the CDC released. Okay. Uh, so Dr. Ross has hung on the line. And to Dr. Ross, this time last year, there was cautious optimism that vaccines would mean maybe the beginning of the end of the pandemic. And yet here we are close to the two-year mark. Dr. Barron there just saying, indeed, that uh, more variants are likely. How How is Omicron and the possibility of new mutations adding to the strain on our collective mental health? Yeah, the the strain is, I've never seen it this high in, in terms of anxiety, in terms of loss and sadness, and in terms of frustration, and, and frankly, in terms of burnout. And that collective strain is impacting all of us. It's impacting our kids. It's impacting us as adults. It's impacting our, our systems. You know, they like to think about the, there's a saying, right? We're all on the same boat. Well, I, I don't think we're in the same boat. I think we're in a relatively same storm, but we have different boats. Hmm. And what we're seeing is that the people who have had, um, who have struggled with anxiety and depression and concerns in the past um, are continuing to struggle in, in really high levels. And people who have otherwise been relatively resilient and have gotten through life relatively unfazed, they're, they're starting to really struggle as well. So there's almost um, not a single person who hasn't been disrupted in terms of their mental health through the past 20 months because of this. What do you think that means for substance abuse? What do you think it means for the possibility of people contemplating, you know, their their futures, their... Yeah, we're... Yeah. <clears throat> We're, we're absolutely seeing increases in, in both of those things. And I think, you know, coming from a psychologist here, I, I think there, the potential for normalizing the impact and really rebranding this whole idea of mental health is a huge opportunity for us right now because we're all experiencing very similar struggles. The anxiety levels are high, again, as mentioned earlier, because of um, unpredictability and, and limited control. Uh, sadness is high right now because of so many things that have been lost in our lives um, that we can really normalize that these experiences are, are deeply human. And if we can start to change that conversation, we can start to really address being able to to get help, um, you know, through the pandemic. Because normalizing it, what? It just it removes an extra burden of shame and stigma. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. We, we often will internalize and avoid talking about it because we, we may believe that our experiences are, are abnormal, that something is wrong with us because we're anxious or we're sad. And if we can validate that, we can recognize that, that my anxiety is similar to somebody else's anxiety, that the, the triggers and the foundational components of those experiences are very much the same. And yet the individual experience of, uh, of that concern may be different. But but the trigger points for it are um, are all there for each and every one of us right now. What are you seeing specifically in healthcare workers in terms of mental health at this point? It it is, and and this is something I, I really hope that everybody can can hear. The the disruption on our healthcare workers is profound. Uh, they are struggling in in very silent ways with burnout, with anxiety, with moral injury, with compassion fatigue. The, the concern that I have is we are gonna have uh, 
years, uh, possibly decades of impact on our mental health care workers, especially those on the front lines through this pandemic, because it has been relentless and such a prolonged, persistent impact on, on their mental health. We all need to do a much better job helping take care of our healthcare workers, because if, if they're not available to take care of us when we need it, we are really going to be, uh, we're really going to be struggling. Is there a subtle implication there to get vaccinated and get boosted, if not for yourself, for the workers who have been at this for two years? Am I putting I words I, in your mouth if I say that? No, no, I, I think that's uh, that's right. You know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, the concern that that we had collectively was on access to, to PPE, access to ventilators. And the concern now that we're two years into this is... Um, we are going to be seeing sort of global um, global retreat from healthcare workers. We, we already start to see people considering retiring early or uh, or or leaving early or taking on other positions. So we're we're now at a position where we need to make sure that we can retain healthcare workers that they still have interest in maintaining their roles as nurses, as docs, as clinicians, uh, to be able to make sure that that our healthcare system stays afloat here. Dr. Barron, on the question of boosters, do you foresee that every six months or so, a, a, you know, another booster will be required? Is this going to look more like the annual flu shot or do we just not know yet? I don't think we know for sure. I think obviously since we're still in the pandemic and this hasn't gotten to levels where it's in the background, I suspect we will continue to recommend things to uh, bolster our immune systems and allow us protection. And so it would not surprise me if we have another recommendation for boosters coming soon. Um, but, you know, uh, COVID is dynamic. It changes, I feel like, every day. So mm -hmm. we may find that there may be a new vaccine or when things finally hopefully settle out, where it is something that we offer every year, like the flu. But I think there's um, lots of things we still don't fully appreciate or know. So um, what I say now may be different even in a week. Yeah, you say that, that COVID-19 is not yet in the background, meaning we're actively still in a pandemic. This is not an endemic phase. Do I hear you saying that? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We are still do not have that magical herd immunity that I think we were all hopeful we would attain by having access to vaccine. Dr. Dominguez, let's talk a little bit about the return to school from winter break. Uh, all sorts of questions now that school leaders are facing about whether to return in person given Omicron. Uh, what, what is your guidance? Where would you like to see districts head? Uh, so I'm not a policymaker, so I leave those decisions ultimately to the policymakers. But I would say that we do really strongly support kids being in school. We know that that's really the best place for them from a, a learning perspective um, and likely from a mental health perspective. And so we really we, we want we want kids to be in school if, if at all possible. But we want that to be as safe as possible. And so from that standpoint, we want to really strongly encourage that all kids be vaccinated. But we still strongly encourage uh, the wearing of masks and in indoor public spaces that includes schools. And then I think the the state here, as well as other places, have, have um, enacted more of a test to stay program. So really aggressive testing uh, to keep kids who are positive um, out of schools or kids who are symptomatic out of schools. So I think uh, we have to really you know up our game in terms of our public health measures in order to keep our schools a safe environment for our kids. Let me just say that CU Boulder is going to go remote at least for a little while, citing both. Omicron and the Marshall Fire in its community. 
Dr. Ross, uh, earlier in the program, we talked about things, tools we can do to build our reservoirs back up. What are those tools for you? Just curious. Yeah, well, I I think there's a number of things we could think about here to to build resiliency. You know, one of them really is connection. And when we go back to 2020, one of the, the biggest disruptions on our mental health at that time was physical distancing. Right, this sense of isolation and moving away from our loved ones in our community really had a huge impact on us. So we need to make sure that we're finding ways to, to maintain connection and a sense of belonging in a safe way. Right. So that's really step one. The, the second is that we have this amazing ability to regulate our minds and our bodies through practices like breathing and meditation. You know, it's like I sometimes joke like that's an idea that's old as dirt. You know, we, we've heard this our entire lives when we're upset. Just take a breath. Well, we know that, that that actually helps physiologically. It helps us dampen the stress response in our bodies and, and helps us present with kind of a clear mind moving forward. So those things are, are critical. And then I, I think what we, again, what we need to do is we need to maintain a conversation that the experiences that we're having with, with stress, anxiety, with burnout are completely normal right now. And we need to maintain the conversation um, in order to make sure that we're collectively working through it. This paradigm we have to adopt is one of, of moving through it um, and moving moving to get to a new stage of normal. But we have to avoid this idea that we're going to get back to sort of pre-pandemic normalcy in our lives. The disruption has just been um, too profound for too long to get to that point. In just a few seconds, Dr. Barron, how's your mental health? Um, you know, I will honestly say it waxes and wanes, and it's something that I have to pay attention to every day and make sure that I'm taking time out of my day just to check in with myself to make sure that, you know, that I'm okay. And I'm really lucky in that we have a tremendous amount of resources available that I take advantage of on an occasion just because I do need them. Thanks to all of you for being with us and offering both uh, medical and mental health perspectives on this, although let's not separate the body and the mind too much. Dr. Michelle Barron, Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention at UC Health. Dr. Justin Ross, Program Director of Workplace Wellbeing, also at UC Health. And Dr. Sam Dominguez is a pediatric infectious disease doctor at Children's Hospital. And that's Colorado Matters for today, early on in 2022. Thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can catch Colorado Matters anytime with our podcast at Apple, NPR One, and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.